When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. The first time I heard someone refer to the British Constitution, I was convinced that I misheard them. After all, I thought to myself, one of the most recognizably obvious things about Britain, on par with ritualistically overcooking vegetables and sneering condescendingly at North American speech patterns, is that they have no constitution. But it turns out, as Princeton University historian Linda Cauley will tell you, that is actually wrong. Just because the British haven't written down their constitution hardly means that it doesn't exist. And that salient, if provocative, insight turns out to give us an intriguing window on what exactly the point of constitutions is anyway, both in the past and in the future. I'd like to go all the way back and ask you when you first started getting interested in history and how it began from there. I think I was one of those children who very early on liked writing stories. I mean, lots of kids do that. Um, And I always liked reading. And I think I was one of many historians who actually could just as happily have gone into studying literature. Hmm. But I wanted to keep the novels and the texts that I valued free from academic analysis. So I decided that literature would be a pleasure, but history, which is also a telling of stories and a curiosity about people, uh, that that that's what I wanted to do. But in addition, I was very lucky in having a succession of very gifted history teachers when I was young. And then as I moved into universities, I met a succession of scholars who had a great deal of influence on me. And I I, I can't say that I ever sort of decided at a certain point when I was young, I was going to be a historian. Um, It was partly serendipity. It was partly a response to a delight in writing stories. It was partly a response to the individuals I came into contact with. Right. And did you, um, you mentioned your love of literature and writing stories. Were there other interests as well? Were there other passions? Did you think, well, I might become a musician or I might become a, an astronaut or I, I might do something else when you, <laughs> when you were younger? Um, let's see. 
there were lots of different things I wanted to be when I was young, but it was partly that career expectations for women then were more reduced than they are now. So, no, I, I so never you felt, thought... So you, you felt that? You felt that th some of these things were just out of bounds? It wasn't so much that as I suspect I never thought of them. I was the first child of my extended family to go to a university. So it wasn't as if I had lots of aunts and uncles and grandparents who could say, well, have you thought of archaeology, Linda, or have you thought of electrical engineering? Uh, I was also someone who... I do meet scholars who are genuine polymaths and who will tell you, oh, you know, I could equally well have done maths, so I could equally well have done science, but I decided to do history. They're often lying. They may well be <laughs> lying. Um, this was certainly not my problem. Uh, perhaps if I had been better taught, I would have had better performances in science and mathematics, but my teachers in those subjects were not very gifted. Um, and it's quite likely that I wasn't very gifted either. So I got funneled towards the humanities, towards the arts, and history in the end won out. And I was a studious child who, uh, as my parents occasionally complained, was always focused on books. So I suppose this, this happened naturally. But I think that if I had had a dynamic aunt who was in, I don't know, commercial banking. Um, I might have given thought to more options, but Commercial I didn't. banking? I'm going to leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting something, I mean, archaeology, I was with the commercial, anyway, that's, that's a whole. So. <laughs> where, 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 did you, where did you grow up exactly? Well, we moved about because of the nature of my father's job, but I was certainly born in um, a place of very visible history. I was born and spent my first five years in Chester, uh, which is on the boundary of England and the north of Wales. Uh, and Chester is a place of Roman ruins. Uh, it's also a place of Victorian fake Roman ruins and black and white houses and museums, and there's a wonderful clock created to commemorate Queen Victoria's Jubilee. So I, and a, and a wonderful red sandstone cathedral. Um, and uh, since my parents didn't have much money, um, we were constantly going on walks around these various historical sites uh, because it was free. Uh, so I, I did grow up very early with a consciousness of old things with being surrounded by the past and, and my parents were very good in telling me stories about what I was seeing and that probably did have an impact. Tell me about the fake Roman ruins, what, what did you, what are those? The, the fake <laughs> Roman ruins, well there's so much fake in Chester, there's, there's black and white houses which look as though they're Tudor houses but they're largely 19th century creations, and indeed you can see an equivalent uh, oh. in the centre of Princeton. Uh, but also the, the city walls, uh, they mimic some of the 
ancient Roman walls and the later medieval walls, but they've been restored and fancied up. Right. So there, you know, there, there's there's the real past, and then there's uh, the counterfeit and invented past jostling against each other in and, Chester. And, and as a child, were you sensitive to this? Were you aware of this? Were you able to suss out the differences between them? Or, or did this not impinge on your consciousness until much later? I had absolutely no idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I think back of, of some of these images that I saw, um, it's interesting thinking what I thought then and what, as a historian, I would think now. For example, in the Art Museum in Chester, there was a pretty bad but very large Victorian painting of a Roman soldier um, standing true to his post uh, in the middle of uh, the Vesuvius explosion in Pompeii. And you can see the lava coming down towards him, but this resolute moving. Roman soldier uh, is sticking to his post. And I used to love that as a child. Um, I was sort of torn even then by sort of thinking, what a stupid man, but also what, what a handsome soldier he was and how brave he was. Now, looking at that picture now, uh, I would see it as uh, an invocation of duty, patriotism. It's very much to do with the empire in the late 19th century, soldiers doing their duty right. in times of danger. But I didn't see that at all when right. I was a child. Which was the whole idea, of I course. Just you weren't thought, supposed to see that at all. No, I just <laughs> thought, you know, this was a soldier who was going to get fried. Um, wasn't that interesting? <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about your teachers, because you mentioned uh, that you had had some particularly adept and influential teachers when you were younger. Do you remember um, the first moments or some of them? Can you be a little bit more specific with some of the teachers who influenced you in a more historical direction? Yes, when I'm uh, at one stage in the many movements we went round, because it meant I kept swapping schools, uh, I had uh, two very good history teachers at Cardiff High School for Girls, where I spent a couple of years. Uh, and one was female, and she was a very uh, shrewd, tough uh, teacher of uh, certain forms of British history. And the other was male, uh, quite rare in a girls' school in those days to have a male teacher. But he was also absolutely fascinated with naval warfare. And he taught me a lot about sea battles between the French and the British in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and I was, I was much struck with that. And it's been one of the characteristics of my career that I actually like going into areas like military history, like naval history, in my own way, areas which are not customary female zones of interest, still. normally. Still. Uh, it's beginning to change, and I, I encourage the change with my own graduate students, but the, there is a kind of still a residual separate spheres among historians about what they tend to choose to study. Mm. So those two historians at Cardiff certainly had an impact on me. 
I had an excellent uh, set of professors at the University of Bristol where I did my first degree, um, particularly one, John Cannon, who was a, an 18th century specialist um, and certainly helped to spur my interest in 18th century studies, which have run through my career to a degree since then. And then when I went to Cambridge, I studied under Jack Plum, J.H. Plum, who was an experience in all sorts of ways. Uh, he was certainly crucial to my moving to the United States uh, in taking my first job at Yale in 1982. That was very much a result of Jack Plum's transatlantic patronage connections. And your interest in British history particularly, because one could imagine you might have gone off into all sorts of different mm -hmm. directions, studying different things. Was this, was this simply a product of, simply is maybe not the right way to put it, was this a product of your environment? Or was this part of a particular passion or predilection that you had for looking at British, looking at things from a British perspective, British orientation. Let me, before you answer, let me just say uh, um, one thing that, that I remember from a conversation that I was fortunate to have with uh, John Elliott, who said when uh, he, he was exposed to Spain uh, quite serendipitously as an undergraduate, did a trip with a bunch of people mm -hmm. and so forth, as I'm sure you're aware. But he said in addition to his falling in love with Spain, he had this sense that British history was overcrowded, that it would be very difficult to actually make a career tactically in, in, in British history. And he was well aware of this. There were so many people who were so expert and, 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 and doing uh, such great work. It was too crowded a field, whereas from his perspective, Spanish history was wide open at the time, and it was a great opportunity for him. And he was consciously aware of that. So, uh, so let me eventually come to a question, which I understand I'm supposed to do in these things. Um, did you have a sense that, uh, that British history was overcrowded in some way, that you were penetrating a very difficult field? I understand British history writ large is a, uh, perhaps a simplification, but did you have any sense of that, or was this just a natural progress of where your interests happened to have? Arrived? I probably should have had a better sense of it when, when I look back at my career at a certain level, I'm amazed that I survived because knowing so much now of how competitive this business is uh, and how very, very gifted people can get squeezed out at different stages, uh, it's, it's quite alarming. But I didn't, I didn't have this strategic awareness when I was younger. Indeed, a very good piece of advice at the time that I entirely ignored uh, was the advice of one of my Bristol professors who was a British historian. And he said, you shouldn't do Britain. What you should do is the hist history of the United States because there, there aren't many American historians in the sense of hist historians of the United States in Britain, uh, but universities have to have them. So why don't you do this? Then the market will come to you. Right. He was absolutely right, but I didn't understand 
why he was arguing this. I just thought this was perverse, and I ignored it. Perhaps I should have taken this advice. Oh, you seem to have done fairly well. I cope, <laughs> yes. Uh, but again, it was partly accidental that, that historians I knew and respected moved me in particular directions. And also, to a considerable degree, I am a, an archival historian, though not so much in what I'm working on now. Um, and I loved being able to go which one could do very cheaply then, to the archives in England and Wales and Scotland and really go into them deeply. And that obviously pushed me into local British histories. But what also pushed me in that direction while also deflecting me was the experience of moving to the United States and teaching at Yale for 16 years from 1982 to 1998. And I was employed there as a British historian, but expected to teach British history very widely, uh, both chronologically and in terms of the different territorial zones where Britain played a part. And it was partly the experience of having to teach British history to American students who were extremely bright, but in most cases entirely ignorant about the British past, that made me rethink how I could present British history, both in terms of writing style and in terms of subject matter, for a very different audience. And Britain's Forging the Nation, which came out in 1992, was very much a response to that American experience, the rather different pedagogic experience. Right. It was also a response to coming to Yale New Haven because one of the many good things that Yale New Haven contains is the Yale Center for British Art, as it was then called, which at that time was the only art gallery specifically devoted to art that was in some way associated with Britain. There is now Tate Britain, but mm -hmm. in those days there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So coming to New Haven, looking at this stunning art gallery, all the visual materials that it contained from the 16th century onwards, uh, cartoons, prints, wonderful oil paintings, uh, all kinds of ephemera, uh, it, it, it enormously amplified my, my sense of the past and gave me a, a visual dimension which I hadn't had before. That's and that's partly why Britain's Forging the Nation and my subsequent books have a visual component. Because no one, no one had ever told me about this in Cambridge. That's hugely ironic, of course, that you had to come to Yale to, <laughs> to yes. be immersed in, in British art. I was going to ask you whether your sense, uh, your personal identity insofar as being British or Britishness had changed, and if so, in what way, and the ramifications on, on your work. So I guess since I was, I threatened to ask this, I, I will ask this, um, but you've answered it a little bit uh, already by, by looking at it through the window of art. Are there, are there other ways? Are there other aspects of when you came to America in general, so we talked a little bit about this earlier, um, about 
there is America in general, and then there is being at a great university such as Yale and so forth, and they mm -hmm. are distinct. Um, but um, it, it, often people are, often, uh, as I'm sure you do all the time, recommend your graduate students to go to different places, have different experiences, grow as, a, grow as an individual and so forth, get out of one's environment. Um, for you as a British historian, coming to America, which was a place that you were urged to become a historian of years previously and shunned, um, did it resonate with you in any particular way in terms of making you more aware of, uh, of what it is to be British and what it is to be American, and did that in and, in and of itself actually have an effect on your, on your work, your professional work as a historian? I'm sure it did have an effect. I think if you move out of your place of birth, and I was already in my early 30s when I crossed the Atlantic to work, so uh, it was a belated move, if you like, in that respect. Perhaps you do have to think harder about what you are, and um, you also see, or at least I saw, the place that I came from in a rather different light, because you are 3,000 miles away, and certain aspects of it become more prominent. Uh, it was clear to me, for example, that a lot of the history I had been taught in Cambridge and at Bristol was in fact English history, it wasn't British history. And that made no sense if you looked 3,000 miles away because, right. I mean, it's a pretty small set of islands anyway, and were you only going to focus on one part of it? It was also clear to me, for example, that the American Revolution, something which was obviously big uh, in terms of American university history teaching, was bound to have a, a massive impact on British society because Britons on both sides of the Atlantic had been culturally as well as dynastically and politically linked up to 1776 and in many ways were culturally and economically linked thereafter. So I had to include an American dimension in my understanding of what British history involved. And I became interested in, more interested in the empire and how it linked up with Britain. That was, that was not unusual. Uh, that's, that's been a trend in the past couple of decades, so I was very typical there. But I just became interested in lots of different subjects which impacted on my understanding of the British past in different ways. And I, I met, uh, when I went to Yale in the 1980s, and again, this was an extraordinary stroke of luck, there were some absolutely stunning historians there. Uh, Jonathan Spence in Chinese history, uh, the late, very late Peter Gay uh, in Central European and, and, and cultural history, David Brian Davis, the great historian of slavery, uh, Bill Cronin, wonderful environmental historian. Uh, it just went on and on and on. And uh, what in my book is, is 
probably the, the greatest colonial American historian I've ever met, Ed Morgan. And all these people were concentrated in the Department of History at Yale when I joined it. And it was just wonderful. It was a whole basket full of goodies. And I would talk to these people, and they'd recommend books. And uh, I, you know, I, I could feel my, my mind expanding in different directions. And all this had an impact on how I hmm. saw the British past. Right. You, you, you mentioned the difference between England and, and Britain and or the United Kingdom. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, ask you specifically about identity is these seem to be themes that you play with a lot throughout your professional career. And in particular, something that intrigued me with acts of union and disunion was this notion of personal identity and an identity, if not directly imposed by the state, at least encouraged by the state. This notion that certain acts of union were done at a particularly well-timed juncture in accordance with the needs of the state in terms of war, to try to foster a certain sense of, um, I was going to say tribalism, that's too pejorative, but a, a, a certain sense of identity, be it Scottish, be it Welsh, be it, uh, be it English, and, and, and what have you. Um, was, and then this is, uh, there's a contrast between that, between the government uh, encouraging, let's say, this notion of identity, and the identity somehow arising spontaneously or already existing in, in the body politic. Was this something that you became more sensitive to, this distinction between encouraged identity and spontaneous identity, if I can make that distinction, by, by being away from the United Kingdom? Or was that something that you were thinking about for a long time before? I think intellectually, I had long been interested in issues of nationalism. That was probably sharpened by my crossing the Atlantic. It was also probably sharpened by the fact that I've also often seen myself as a kind of mongrel. Uh, I'm partly Welsh. I moved about a lot uh, as a young child, which really did have, I think, an enormous impact on my development. Uh, I think if you are constantly changing schools and groups of friends and have a sense of mobility, you, you do see things differently. Is it a sense of objectivity or is it, and or is it a sense of being able to um, fit in with other people, be able to look at things from their perspective? What, what is it that, that makes you change? When you're... Perhaps you get a greater sense of plasticity of identity, that you, you are having to remake yourself, rethink yourself right. in different zones. So I was receptive to those issues at a more abstract intellectual level. In regard to the United Kingdom, and its issues, it was clear to me from the other side of the Atlantic by the 1990s that the fractures were becoming wider, that they were often not being fully understood. And some of my work ever since then has been directed, insofar as it has a public dimension, to making some of these issues better understood. Some years ago, I 
organised uh, or helped organise an exhibition in the British Library uh, on, it was basically political constitutional texts right. in the British and Irish past from the medieval period to the modern day. Um, it was called by the British Library taking liberties, which would not have been my choice, but never mind. It was a very interesting exhibition, and it, lots of people came to see it. But when I was working with the British Library curators organizing that exhibition, which was a great experience for me because uh, I always like learning from other people's expertise, but it was clear to me that these people who had all university educations had no different idea of the difference between UK and Great Britain. Uh, and obviously these are different physical spaces. Mm. And if highly educated and aware curators in the British Library didn't know the difference, a bit of a problem. then what does it tell you about the population at large? Also, I think uh, an error that I often encounter, well, I see it as an error, is this sense that uh, identity should be something single and monochrome. Whereas, as I know myself, most of us have multiple identities. Right. And indeed, the United Kingdom, insofar as it has worked in the past, has only been able to work through multiple identities. People have packed these different things sure. together. You used this analogy of Russian dolls before in a previous discussion. Yes, or, you know, my, my, my other favourite analogy, which I borrowed from Eric Hobsbawm, was that an identity is not a hat. You can wear different ones at the same time. Uh, and, and in fact, and you, you, almost everyone does. Yeah. I mean, by, almost by definition. It, yeah. it's, it's very difficult to uh, only wear one. But people, I mean, people know that if you push them against the wall and make them think about that, but they don't necessarily think about that in regard to the United Kingdom, and I think it's important. I also think, and this has been a continuing issue, that because the state in Britain has, in all sorts of ways, been a very strong state, it has perhaps not given as much thought to issues of identity uh, as it might have done. And this is perhaps becoming more problematic. If you have a polity which has no written constitution, therefore no iconic text summoning up what is distinctive about the polity, what are the desired aims, and if lots of your conventional buttresses, like the one-time empire, like majority Protestantism, uh, like uh, significant geographical insularity, are all either gone or severely compromised, then you have to think, well, what are going to be our cements now? Right. And, of course, governments don't want to take such a challenging issue uh, seriously if they can avoid it because they have so much else to do. But I'm not convinced that 
the UK is going to be able to go on much longer without devoting some concerted thought to these issues. And that's partly what I wanted to unpack right. at the end of my book, Acts of Union. Right. So I'd like to get, uh, later on I'd like to talk a little bit about the present day and the implications and so forth. But let's pick up on that and talk about um, the lack of constitution and, um, and, and what that means. One of the themes that I certainly think seems to go through both your professional work and your public statements is, is this sense of avoiding the, the trite partitioning of different ideas into different boxes um, to the extent of not necessarily taking a revisionist or a neo-revisionist view of the empire, but looking at it in all of its glorious or perhaps inglorious complexity in different ways. Um, similarly, with respect to the Constitution, um, I personally have long been confused by the, the legalities involved in the United Kingdom. I'd like you to help me out with some of them. I always found it very ironic that this was a place that was a constitutional monarchy um, without a constitution. That struck me as a... <laughs> <laughs> as an odd juxtaposition right from the very beginning. Um, but one of the things uh, that at least you point out in your recent essay, and you said that you've changed it around, so maybe, maybe you've, you've changed it, but is this idea that, um, that, well, there is no one constitution of, the, uh, uh, of Britain, but it, it is, uh, and clearly there are different uh, let me start that whole thing all over again. So, so my understanding is that there are some people who take a very strict demarcation between the United States uh, and, and what has happened in Britain in terms of a constitution. So the standard line seems to me to be, um, and you had cited Palmer and you had cited some other people involved, uh, that America had established this clear demarcation, this phase shift, as we would say in science, that uh, they rebelled against, uh, uh, against Britain, they declared independence, they put out a constitution, and this inevitably led towards not only uh, democracy conquering the United States and, and a glorious republic being established, but had this ripple effect throughout the globe and inevitably led the way towards the embrace of democracy and Republican values. And this is a story which um, I think Americans tell themselves. I think many people around the world uh, will also say, but there are all sorts of shades of gray that are associated mm -hmm. with it. Um, namely the role that Britain itself has played in terms of fostering these constitutions, in terms of being involved in, in the dissemination of these ideas and so forth. So to me, when I'm reading this, I get this, the idea that, well, hang on, it's actually much more complicated mm -hmm. than that. There, there isn't this, this, this clear de demarcation. Um, is it fair to say that one of the orientations that you have is to try to highlight the depth and the subtlety that's involved in these rather um, uh, facile and somewhat specious distinctions between this is one way, to, this is the way it happened over here and that's the way it happened over there? Is that, is that clear? That's not a clear, very, that's not a very clear question. 
Let me ask you another question. No, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, let me start answering that one or, or answering some of it, and then we can um, develop it as we go along. See, this is the power of editing. You know, you yeah, get to, you exactly. Get to, you get to get, exactly. <laughs> you get to um, <laughs> I think my interest in, in, in what is called written constitutions or codified constitutions is something that has evolved as a response to my being in the United States, but also as a response to being British, where one is told that written constitutions are something rather exotic. Uh, we don't have one. So I became curious, uh, both because of the cult of written constitutions here and the reputed absence of a written constitution in the UK. And it, it, this, this just irritated my mind. And so I thought I, I, I ought to work on it. I'm most deeply interested in the fact that written constitutions after the 1750s increasingly conquer the globe. Uh, they don't actually start in the United States. There's a written constitution in Corsica in the 1750s, uh, which is often forgotten. Um, but certainly the, the United Didn't States... Didn't you say that Rousseau wrote, wrote that as yes, well? Yes, but there, were, there was an even earlier one in the 1750s. So, uh, and again, you know, Corsica's a small place. They don't, it doesn't make the big bang that the United States uh, state and federal constitutions make. But still, it's important. But by 1800, written constitutions are, have swept the United States. They're increasingly influential in continental Europe. Uh, in the first half of the 19th century, uh, they're spreading even more, and they're spreading into Latin America. In the second half of the 19th century, they're spreading way outside the West, into Japan, into the Pacific countries, uh, into some parts of Asia and South Asia. Uh, and now, of course, written constitutions are almost the norm. And I became perplexed that no one really wanted to come to grips with this other than in terms of the spread of democracy, the spread of rights, right. which made no sense because certainly by the First World War, uh, the empires are still in charge rather than the nation states. Rights are very imperfect. Even after the Second World War, there's not that many full-blown democracies around, even though written constitutions are all over the globe. So, right. so what do these phenomena mean? And how, how can you make also constitutional history interesting again? Because the subject up to the 1950s and 60s was really big. But now it's sort of died, uh, and it's considered very fusty. So one of the things I wanted to do was also to look at the spread of constitutions, almost like the spread of the novel uh, in literature across the globe. This is a, a huge cultural shift. Why do people start taking these texts for granted? What does it mean that you start writing them and putting them into print and reading them and they get taught in schools and people stick them on the wall? Um, this is a really interesting shift in human behavior over time and over boundaries. So I, I was intrigued 
generally about them. But I was also intrigued because it was clear to me coming from Britain that there was so much misunderstanding even in regard to Britain. I mean, right. the whole concept of Britain having an unwritten constitution. Um, you can now word search online, of course. Um, that phrase, unwritten constitution, is hardly used in Britain before 1850. People mm. don't think in those terms. Indeed, they still think not in terms of, surely, of a single codified constitution, but they certainly think of a, code of a constitution that is crucially dependent on really significant texts like Magna Carta, like the Petition of Rights, like the Bill of Rights of 1689. Right. Uh, so for the British for a long time, their constitution, which they make a very big cult of, is still very much associated with different forms of writing. And it's, it's only fairly belatedly that you get uh, a, a sort of more binary notion of Britain being unwritten, other countries, and certainly the United States being very much written. <laughs> Okay, but here, here's, my, here's my problem with all of this. So to me, an unwritten constitution strikes me as oxymoronic. Um, the whole point of a constitution is to make it, as I understand it, make it very, very clear what the law of the land is, have, have this crystalline transparency so that everybody knows what their rights are, what their freedoms are, when their rights uh, are, are somehow being Im imposed upon or abrogated or what have you, um, whatever legal recourse they have. So the notion of an unwritten constitution in and of itself is odd to me. And then the second point is it seems to me that, uh, that the point of a constitution is to act as a constraint upon the executive. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution, uh, because you have this Constitution which is above and beyond whoever happens to be in power, um, and my understanding of the, the English tradition, so I don't pretend to be an expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding is the Bill of Rights effectively gives Parliament the right to do whatever it wants to, and by definition an act of Parliament is, is the, uh, the be-all and the end-all, and of course they're fighting with the sovereign and what have you, but the 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 upper level of the branch, the government, as it were, broadly defined, can do whatever it wants and does not have this, this document which can serve as a break on it. So those strike me as two very different ways of looking at how you govern a society that is characteristic of the United Kingdom. And maybe that's what you were getting to when you were talking about. So I'm, I do know the difference between the United Kingdom and, and Britain, but I keep, but I'm, geographically, but I'm, maybe I'm using the words inappropriately. But to me, um, that, that's oddly curious. Like when I, when I look at, at, at Britain, I think uh, this is an exceptional country when you look at it through the broad sweep of history, uh, or at least a, a minimum sweep of history. So they have this weird predilection with having no constitution, which some people might call an unwritten constitution. Um, they don't have a, a break on their, 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 their government. They have this empire which has had this enormously uh, significant effect uh, worldwide. 
these things might be related somehow, no? Or, or are they? Mm, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, the, these, these are huge issues. Uh, a, a very clever British judge once said that the British Constitution was not so much unwritten, it was difficult to find. In other words, and, and the fact that it is difficult to find is part of the problem as far as I am concerned. But certainly there are sets of iconic texts and there is the common law tradition, there's all sorts of parliamentary acts. But for me there is a problem because uh, unless you are uh, an expert lawyer, uh, a really expert lawyer, trying to sort all this out is very, very hard. So there is a problem that if you were uh, an interested British citizen wanting to know what his or her constitution is, you can't download it, you can't get it from the library, it isn't contained in a single volume. I regard that as anti-democratic, so not everyone would agree, but uh, my view is that that's a wrong idea. As for constitutions being breaks on the executive, well, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. Um, the US Constitution, of course, is the original one, is extremely brief, which is partly, I suspect, why it survived. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, uh, the great Abraham Lincoln arguably went against the Constitution in all sorts of ways during the American Civil War. Um, American historians um, still debate the legality or not under the Constitution of the Louisiana Purchase uh, in the early 19th century, which was hugely advantageous for the United States' own internal colonialism sweeping all this land into American control. So how far written constitutions anywhere are fully effective in acting as a break on the executive is a moot point. Uh, that said, I have lived in the United States sufficiently long to think that one should have a go with one, uh, but I don't think acting as a break on the executive is the only thing, sure. or even the most important thing, that so-called written constitutions can do. I think the informational uh, point is, is, if anything, all the more important, that people should be able to understand more clearly how they are governed. Now, in Britain, how they got round this in the past is, and I think this was very much the British response or a British response to the evolution of paper constitutionalism. What they did was they made a cult of constitutional history, a phrase which an Englishman invents in the 1820s. And 
really from increasingly through the 19th century uh, up to the Second World War and certainly into the 1950s, early 1960s, um, doing constitutional history was something that you expected to do in school, expected to do in university, and okay, it was often quite biased constitutional history, but it gave you a certain version about how the constitutional system in Britain had evolved, what its component parts were, how it was supposed to work. Uh, it gave people a, a sense of the mechanics. And what has that happened, I think, and it's a real problem and it, it affects everybody, including members of parliament and members of the British cabinet, is that with constitutional history going and with no written constitution available, there's now a huge degree of constitutional illiteracy in the UK. People just do not know what the system is or how it's supposed to work. And I think that's very dangerous. And even though there is a constitution in this country, in the United States, um, is it your experience that um, there is not a similar degree of constitutional illiteracy? I mean, one might still have a constitution and still have a, uh, a society which is not aware of the details of the constitution. But that's not happening here, is that, is, is, oh, as opposed oh, to the United States. Oh, yes. I, I mean, I'm not saying that, that it is perfect here at all. Um, there would, it seems to me, be a very strong case for uh, a profound revision of the US Constitution for all sorts of reasons. After all, the great Thomas Jefferson felt that a written constitution of the sort that the US had adopted should probably be changed every 18 years or so because, really? yes, because, you know, because society is altered. Sure. Um, I mean, one could think of all sorts of things uh, in the current makeup of the US Constitution. Uh, like, to my mind, gun laws, like, to my mind, and to many other people's mind, the operation of the Supreme Court, uh, that you, you would rethink now. But the American Constitution is the oldest one in the world, and parts of it are arguably no longer fit for purpose. But it is the case, yes, that of course you can find constitutional illiteracy here, uh, it came as a shock to, reputedly, to some of the Tea Party activists who asked for public readings of the American Constitution, the original American Constitution, to discover that it contained no mention of God because they hadn't read it before. Mm -hmm. Well, that's um, not surprising, but. They wouldn't have done that deliberately, and it was, of course, quite remarkable insofar as it didn't contain any, yeah. any mention of God. I, I, I wanted to ask you about um, something I read which struck me as fascinating, which was um, constitutions as a, as a mechanism for empire, which was rather counterintuitive. But before I do, I, I just want to pick up on a couple of the things that you've said and ask you some more specific questions. So first of all, the, the, the exhibit at the British Library um, how did you get involved in that? You, had, you were talking about how uh, constitutional issues were almost discarded and, and, and you started looking at these things again. Um, 
what triggered your interest and and were you already starting to think about this sort of thing years before you moved forward with the, the project, the exhibit with the British Library, or how did that all come about? Well, I'm devoted to the British Library. When I was uh, in Britain, attached to the London School of Economics, um, I had the great honour of serving on the board of the British Library, uh, which, and it was intriguing to see it from the inside as if you like, as distinct from using it as a reader, which I, I do all the time. Sure. And I, I just had this sense of all the richness that, that was there, which wasn't necessarily fully seen or understood. But I'd already become curious about these great constitutional texts, which were no longer taught um, and, and often seen just as arid legalese, um, and I wondered if one could make an exhibition out of them. And I think the British Library was was quite sceptical, um, as were its marketing people. They thought that no one would come, and, and we had a, a, a marvelous sort of encounter with some of the market people who said, well, you know, because they, they send people to different parts of the country and ask people if they would be interested, and, and someone said, well, you know, we, we went up to Hull and they'd never heard of the Petition of Right. And I said, well, that's what the exhibition is there to do. <laughs> it's to point. make sure that people have heard of the Petition of Right. Um, but also the library was thinking, well, you know, aren't, aren't all these just rather arid texts? Um, you know, even Magna Carta, which has uh, visitor recognition, is not the most seductive thing to see. But I, I thought that we could turn it into a, a, a good exhibition. And actually, it was very moving. I mean, we got well over 100,000 visitors. And we had school groups coming. And we had MPs coming. And uh, people brought their children and looked at these sacred constitutional texts. And I, I found it both very exciting. And I was very pleased that people were interested, but also infuriating that there isn't, I don't mean this in any easy patriotic drum banging way, but if you want to get people interested in their rights and, and the sense of how the state had evolved, it seems to me that you could have some kind of standing exhibition of this sort in a place like Westminster Hall, which mm. is this great, wonderful space uh, near the Houses of Parliament, as you know, and it's it's a wonderful space. It's completely empty and cavernous, and you know you you could you could have exhibits like that uh, on a permanent basis there, and I think people would come. I think this notion that that people just aren't interested, uh, it's not trying, and and I wanted to try. And and did it have any? Granted, it didn't. There is no permanent exhibit. Westminster right now, today, mm. maybe after this there will be, maybe maybe things will change, uh, but, uh, but I doubt it. But did it... Did so it do I doubt did it. it <laughs> <laughs> did it have any longer term effects in terms of uh, aspects of the educational system, aspects of, of, uh, of, of the media perhaps picking up and saying, well, we need to pay more attention to these sorts of things, maybe a drive to 
uh, more coherently uh, fully embrace the notion of a written constitution. Um, did any of that sort of thing start to happen? You said 100,000 people came through. Was there any, any drumbeat, even if it petered out a little bit like that? I think in the last 10 or 20 years, partly as a response to growing political fractures and challenges in the UK, there is very slowly increasing interest in constitutional issues. Uh, there has, after all, been the devolution measures of the 1990s. There's been the creation of the Supreme Court. There's been the debate over the Human Rights Act. All these things are going to continue. Uh, and you know, people are beginning to talk about a constitutional convention, and uh, I've recently served on a commission uh, examining what suggestions and knowledge about constitutional reform could be put together in a report to be given to all the political parties in the UK today to get them to understand these issues hopefully better. Uh, and of course, we've had a, a lot of events this year about Magna Carta. I gave a big lecture at the London Guildhall about Magna Carta mm. uh, at the end of last year, and that's now available as a podcast, and people people watch it and so forth. But it's it's still very bitty, and of course, it you know there are powerful vested interests involved in these issues, uh, discussing the constitution of a state and thinking how it might be altered, uh, and even making people more informed about it is not necessarily going to be popular with everyone. Hmm. So but just it's to, challenging. Just to clarify, I mean, Magna Carta is, of course, very different. I, I, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a very, at least it seems to me, it is a very different thing to have uh, a, a document from the 13th century, it was the 13th, right? Mm. Or, right, yeah. 13th century, <laughs> um, that, uh, that limited the power of one particular monarch, mm. um, many specific items of which have been overturned or evolved in, in time according oh, to various absolutely. acts of parliament yeah. and so forth and so on. And something like the constitution of country X, which may or may not have been amended from time to time, but is right there and is, is, is enshrining the rights and liberties and freedoms and structure of orientation of the, of the body politic and so forth and so on. Um, so it seems to me that there, um, Maybe this is because I'm not British, uh, uh, but but I I look at um, I look at this uh, Magna Carta as a as a wonderful historical document and interesting and part of the legacy of of what later became the British tradition. But um, it's a much harder thing to identify with if you actually look at it than, than a formal constitution. It oh. seems like it's something completely different. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one of the insidious things of the cult of Magna Carta can be that it 
produces a kind of undue complacency. You know, we sorted out our liberties ultra early and we don't need to do anything more about it, thank you, because we've got Magna Carta. Um, I mean, Magna Carta, and that was partly what I talked about in my Guildhall lecture, there are so many Magna Cartas. There's what the text actually said at the time, but there are constantly shifting interpretations of the text in addition, which have altered over time. And different lobbies have used Magna Carta for very different purposes over the centuries. But you're absolutely right. It's not at all a written constitution as we regard that term now. It is not a fundamental law. And indeed, one scholar uh, calculated that all but three or four parts of Magna Carta had been uh, cancelled out by Parliament. Um, So it's a relic, much of which no longer applies. Uh, The crucial significance it has uh, is, is... symbolic but more than symbolic that the king is below the law Uh, in other words any secular authority is or should be below the law and that's an important principle it's an important principle but if if parliament can change the law if the law is whatever parliament says uh, i mean presumably you can amend a constitution anyway but but if parliament is is the law, then it strikes me as more of a tussle between Parliament and, and, and the monarch rather than something else. But yeah, yeah. I mean, par- parliamentary sovereignty, uh, which is itself a concept that's gone up and down over the centuries, um, there is that powerful cult of, of parliamentary sovereignty, you're right, which can uh, do everything, get rid of everything. Of course, in practice, uh, no. Right. Um, if we believe the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty of Westminster, it could now get rid of the Edinburgh Parliament. Sure. Um, and there's also, I mean, right yeah. now, to just abruptly transition to the present day, there's there are all sorts of EU conventions and so forth that it's constrained by, presumably. It can't just violate the, the European uh, Union human rights and and all all the rest of this. Yes, and I mean, indeed, morphing from history into politics, it is arguable and has been argued from the right in British politics that if the UK had a written constitution, uh, it would find EU legislation less invasive because it it would have its own fundamental laws. And because the UK doesn't have a fundamental law, it is arguably more vulnerable uh, to what Brussels wants to do. Hmm. Interesting. Um, So I'd I'd like to get back to um, this point I raised earlier about what struck me as as fascinating and counterintuitive about the notion of constitutions. And I'm going to try to um, start a paragraph I started before that didn't wind up going in the right direction. So I'm going to try the whole thing all over again. Um, and, and the original paragraph was about how uh, you, like any good historian in my books, you enjoy pointing out where simplicity has occurred. Mm-hmm. 
you enjoy demonstrating that things are, in fact, much more complicated, much more subtle, and so forth. So the, the, the subtle picture that uh, governments with constitutions like to tell, or that people like to tell who are on the side of, uh, of constitutions, like the American Constitution, but by no means the only one, is that this is a natural stepping stone towards the emancipation of people, towards democracy, towards the march of republican values, towards uh, all sorts of positive good things. And of course, many of us believe that. But at the same time, when one looks historically, according to what uh, uh, one of the articles uh, that, that you've written recently, one finds that in fact constitutions have often been used for, uh, for nation states to impose empires, for nation states to impose uh, empires not only uh, overseas empires, but also overland empires. You talk about how the American Constitution was used to... Was that being yeah, picked up? Okay. How the, how the American Constitution was, uh, was used by the American government to actually expand and conquer native uh, lands, uh, to, to some degree, oppress minority groups and so mm -hmm. forth. How uh, Burke had pointed out that the, the French revolutionaries were using the Constitution as a context to take over mm -hmm. France, as it, as it were. And this struck me as, as a fascinating aspect and quite a counterintuitive one, that in fact constitutions can be used uh, to be, uh, as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a method, as a tool, to expand empires? Yes, I, I think written constitutions have been almost from the beginning multi-purpose documents. You can see them as rights documents. Uh, you can see them as limiting documents on the executive. Uh, and that isn't wrong because there's often those components in them. But they also have a derigist aspect, uh, a capacity to shape people and how people think. Uh, and I think, you know, the men of Philadelphia meeting in 1787 were aware of that really right from the beginning. I mean, they were trying to stick together different colonies and create a strong central authority. Uh, so that tension was there from the beginning. But certainly when I started working on this project, um, I, I was struck by it wasn't that you know this just happened occasionally. It was happening again and again and again, partly because so many polities in the late 18th, 19th, early 20th century are empires of different kinds, maritime empires, overland empires. But, you know, empires are not looked down on at that point. They're the sort of the default mechanism, almost. So obviously these regimes want to see if they can use constitutions, written constitutions for their own purposes, taking advantage of the fact that uh, in a time of growing print availability, growing literacy, uh, you can use these texts to persuade, to exert control, to coax people in various directions. Um, and you, you see so many empires doing that. 
the, the United States using uh, an amalgam of federal and state constitutions to sew together a whole continent right. uh, while extruding certain groups that you don't want to recognize, like the, the Native Americans, uh, revolutionary French, but much more Napoleon, constructing his overland European empire by writing constitutions and giving them to places like Poland and Spain and saying, you will now govern yourself like this. And, right. and yes, you will have these rights, but uh, this is how it's going to be. Uh, the Russian Empire, um, there were plans even in the early 19th century by Tsar Alexander to create a, a written constitution for Russia as a whole. Uh, he couldn't do that, but he certainly wrote a constitution to bring Poland more firmly under Russian control. And you see Britain, for all its supposed uh, dislike of written constitutions at home, playing with the idea of whether they can create constitutions in writing for some of their colonial spaces. Mm. Uh, the Spanish do this, the Portuguese do this, uh, the Ottoman Empire does it, um, and the Soviet Empire is going to try the same games in the 1930s under Stalin. So. Uh, written constitutions, like any human political technology, uh, can cater in practice to many purposes. Well, wasn't there this wonderful anecdote that um, um, Aaron Burr was telling Jeremy Bentham, I think, that he should go take over Mexico with the constitution and these people will follow you? Was, 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 yeah. am, I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, you know, they're, they're, bizarre. well, I, you know, it's, it's one of the things that Americans and Brits uh, continue to have in common in the 19th century, despite the revolution that has ostensibly split them. Um, this sense that they are both uh, founts of constitutional virtue and liberation and that the best favor they can do for others is to impose their systems there. Um, and both the United States and the United Kingdom play those kind of games. You know, we are the bringers of freedom and light. Yeah. Let us draft your constitution for you. And, and, and again, there is this, uh, I think, juxtaposition or tension between the naive version of the people revolting and the constitution being an expression of the people's will and, and this, this naive sense of, uh, of, of the rule of law and this law-like package, this crystalline sense of, of the triumph of democracy and so forth. And the very pragmatic fact that, well, any constitution, of course, is written by somebody. Somebody has to, you, you talked about these guys that got together in Philadelphia or, or these particular elites that feel that they can in, impose that on someone, um, that a constitution is not written simultaneously by all the people all the time. It's really, of course, a selling act. And this is what I was getting at before when I was talking about identity, the imposition of identity of, of, of the state as opposed to the individual identities of, of people. That you're, It seems to me you're constantly playing with these these ideas and trying to see when the state is making an imposition uh, subtly or not too subtly or, or, or otherwise. Yeah, um, 
I, I mean, I would want to say that so-called written constitutions are multi-purpose, but that also means, of course, they are volatile or can be volatile. Um, empires certainly use them and try to use them, and they realize their possibilities very quickly. But written constitutions are also or can be unstable devices because they can give people ideas. Like all written texts, they like the Bible, if you like, they can be read in different ways. Right. Um, and so while some imperialists certainly want to use them, there's often debates within imperial states as to how far this is safe. Uh, you know, do you really want to... Might backfire. Exactly. <laughs> and sometimes it does. Right. So when you say so-called, you've said this a few times, so-called written constitutions, and I've expressed the fact that I'm easily flummoxed by this idea of an unwritten constitution because it seems like an oxymoron to me. But when you say so-called written constitutions, what I'm getting from you, it's, there's a, a slight pejorative ring. Maybe I'm misinterpreting that. Because on the one hand, it seems to me that you're, you, you, you do believe that Britain would be better off with mm -hmm. a written constitution. Um, and on the other hand, you certainly maintain that all sorts of uh, aspects of the culture and the tradition uh, of democracy and respect for, for civil rights and human rights and so forth and the great parliamentary tradition are, have been not only maintained throughout Britain, but have been exported successfully mm -hmm. to all sorts of places around the world, notwithstanding the fact that they don't have a written constitution. So, um, so should they have a written constitution? And, and, no. and why would it... Why would it help? Okay. Um, uh, when I say so-called written constitution, I'm not being pejorative at all. Um, I'm genuflecting to the fact um, one learns so much when you go into new areas. And some of my uh, friends who have got massive legal training shudder when I use the term written constitution. They say, Linda, you mean codified constitution, a certain discrete recognized text. So the problem is you hang around too many lawyers, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Always a problem. Always a problem. So, uh, but I, I, you know, but I'm not being pejorative. Uh, and I actually do think the coming of these discrete written constitutions, not just a jumble of iconic constitutional texts, which is what England and it's different adjacent countries have, but a discrete, identifiable, iconic constitutional text um, is important. And as I say, I think this has global ramifications because uh, anything like that goes into print. Um, and it's one of the things I'm interested in, how print increasingly takes this particular strategy of rule across boundaries so that different peoples begin to think of these kind of documents and begin to say, well, perhaps we should have one too. Right. Um, so, so two things. One is, is the irony, uh, you'd already mentioned this, but I think it's worth pointing out that um, so many people passed, either were British or were passing through 
London and passing through uh, areas of Britain for formative stages of their lives who wound up having such a huge influence on the production of constitutions all over the world. Mm. Um, and Britain doesn't have a, a constitution. That, that, that struck me as, and continues to strike me as, as quite ironic. But I, I want to ask you about, um, so, so in that way, let me just back up a little bit. So, so in that way, it seems to me that it's almost as if Britain is taking credit for being a constitutional leader without actually having a constitution in a way, if you understand what I'm saying, maybe, yeah. Yeah. which is odd, but uh, maybe not. I, I think in the past, it, you know, I'm not sure, sure how many of these complacencies still survive, but certainly there was often a sense in the past that, well, other parts of the world need to write this stuff down, but... Well, we don't. We don't, because we know it. Right. <laughs> See. You know, it is within. Um, and uh, I mean that I should say that debate goes back a very long way. Uh, there's a debate in the Bible as to what is the best law. Should it be exterior written law or the law that is, as Saint Paul says, written on the soul, interior law? And I think the British do have, uh, certainly at their 19th century height, a sort of sense that. They know it. They so, don't have to have. So it's part a of the superiority of, of of being of being British, or maybe depending on who you talk to, being English or, or what have you. Yeah, a superior, exceptionalist, whatever. Um, That's got to be superior. I mean, if you, know, I'm, I mean, sure, it is, it is. I'm sure it often was superior. But there's also this paradox that London, in particular, partly because it was for so long the world centre of trade, of print, of publishing, of commerce, as well as of empire. Um, London does serve as this great clearinghouse of information and political exiles and political ideas. Um, so not just in regard to constitutions, but you can see uh, how important London was as a clearinghouse of political information about these devices. Hmm. Uh, and people are constantly coming to London from different parts of the world, meeting up with other exiles and political activists, getting ideas, writing crucial constitutional texts and manifestos and so forth. Uh, you know, not just uh, European exiles in the early 19th century and Latin American exiles, but uh, Indian nationalists, people like Sun Yat-sen. Um, it, it's a continuing pattern. Right. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the law. I didn't want to ask about the law. Actually, it was just brought up from what you said now. Now, I realize that you're not a lawyer, notwithstanding the fact that you hang around lawyers. Um, but one of the things that's long bemused me, so maybe you'll be able to help me and maybe you won't on this, is, is the fine distinction between common law and civil law. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, on the surface, there seems to be some clear understanding that common law is more precedent-based and civil law is, is more in accordance with a, with a particular text or code and their invocations of the Napoleonic Code mm -hmm. and so forth. It seems to me that these things are structurally linked. If you believe that you don't actually need to write something down, and that, well, you just know it, that, uh, that these, are, these are things that any 
what's this phrase, English bread mind knows or, or words mm -hmm. to that effect, um, then that, that sets you on a path towards a somewhat different legal structure than if you think, no, 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 you have to actually look at a certain text and analyze it in accordance absolutely. to the text. Is that, so is that where a demarcation? Yes, I, I think this is absolutely vital. Um, I think the, the legal systems in the UK explain its current constitutional systems in all sorts of ways. Uh, one is the point you raise that if you make a cult of the common law as the English do, a set of precedents, then it is easy to glide into the view that therefore political practices are also a set of precedents over time uh, and it's quite inappropriate to try and cram everything down in one particular document produced at one particular way, that you need something much more fluid and flexible that will alter over time. Um, the other way in which legal structures in the UK, I think, has shaped constitutional evolution is that Scotland, of course, has its own legal system. Uh, which is important if you're looking at Scottish nationalism now, but I think may also help to explain why uh, the UK has not as yet evolved a conventional written constitution, because to do so, uh, its legal activists and politicians would have to wrestle with two systems of law nice. within the same polity. How, how different is the Scottish legal system? I know they have this weird thing of not proven. That's the only thing I know. That they, You're on it, your it, own there. It, I, I... It's just different. Go ask a Scottish historian. Oh, okay. Um, something has... Uh, I've thought, I, I thought of something else while reading uh, uh, this article that I had mentioned. Um, the link between constitution and language. So there are different aspects of this. I mean, one that you point out is that many of the people who worked with constitutions uh, and producing constitutions with themselves, linguists are exceptionally motivated by language. And obviously one has to look at the subtlety and the power mm. and the evocative possibility of language and pay very close attention to these sorts of things. Um, but. I, I sometimes have a thought, and I think this is a crazy thought, but I'm going to voice it anyway, that it's possible, at least in principle, that one language could be in some ways more fitting or more appropriate to the creation of a constitution than another language. Now, this is a fairly heretical, iconoclastic view. I realize the standard view is that, no, we all think the same and that we all, mm -hmm. everything can be expressed in different languages and so forth. But and it's not as if I'm uh, just voicing imperialistic English-bred uh, philosophies, but I, I, I do think it's possible that there, there are some languages that are more predisposed towards clarity in a legalistic, formal way than others. Mm -hmm. Is that completely crazy in your view, or, or do, you, do you think that there's something there? I think there is something there in the sense and work on these issues which are absolutely huge is really taking off at the moment. Um, what effect does 
the huge diversity of languages have on understandings of political concepts and use of them and what what do tr what does translation mean uh, and written constitutions really bring this issue very much to bear because written constitutions when they take off in the 19th century they're constantly being translated into different languages because people are interested in them and lawyers and politicians want to get a sense of what other states and empires are doing with these texts. And no one has really studied, and I certainly don't have the gifts or the time to do so, what these translations actually say. Right. Because um, even a German translation of a Spanish uh, constitutional document um, the vocabulary, it, not just because it's a different language, but because uh, words, words have different nuances. Uh, issues like people, nation, uh, you know, th there's so many nuances being intruded in the act of translation. So uh, I can quite see why people are getting very excited about these issues. Um, as I say, it's, it's not something I intend to sink into, but... Um, whether the wider point that you raise that perhaps some languages lend themselves more easily to certain forms of constitutional writing than others, whether that is so, we still need to find out. Um, what you certainly can say, of course, is that the growing cult of uh, written constitutions is one of the many things that helps increasingly marginalize those peoples in different parts of the globe which do not have written alphabets. I mean, this hmm. is a device that really privileges peoples with written languages and with access to print. Uh, and therefore, written constitutions put up very powerful barriers, not necessarily between the West and the rest, but certainly between powerful uh, societies and those which have less power. And that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't looked at it actually from that perspective. Um, and as one is moving into an increasingly globalized world, as the cliche goes, but I think the cliche has some uh, objective merit to it. Um, does this mean that, in your view, there will be fewer and fewer constitutions to the extent that one can imagine, I'm taking the longer view, so let's take a 100-year view or, or worse to that effect. And we imagine that the role of not so much global government, but, but more global organizational bodies and structures start playing gradually a larger and larger role in the affairs of the political affairs of the world. Um, then I'm guessing that that would argue for uh, some sort of streamlining effect in terms of constitutions which have a greater jurisdiction over greater numbers of states. Is that the right way to look at it? Or in fact, could it work out the other way around? You could argue that you might get two inverse phenomena happening that 
um, perhaps there will be a greater fashion for global or regional or continent-wide iconic texts as different parts of the world move more closely together and you know one's seeing uh, texts on the environment emerging, um, right. you know, human rights texts and so forth. But it could also be um, that perhaps some nation states like the, or multinational states like the UK or perhaps Spain uh, will fragment and different parts will create their own written constitution. So it may be that we may be moving both towards the very big in terms of future constitutional experiments and smaller units emerging, which also want their own written constitutions. I mean, the Scottish National Party has said that uh, if Scotland does become independent, it will have a written constitution. So as I told you before, this is not journalism, and so I try to shy away from a lot of contemporary topics which will date this, but uh, in this case I want to make an exception. I'd like to talk a little bit about Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I I just say, I will have to stop at one. Yes, okay. Um, Okay, so I will. Thank Uh, you for letting me know, because I will. Um, So... um, First of all, an, an observation, and I want to see, because I know you've given a lot of thought to this and you've spoken publicly about this in many ways. What happened in Scotland was fascinating to me. By what happened, I mean the holding of a referendum, the fact that the referendum on the, on the, the question of separation was rejected, albeit very narrowly. And then after that, the enormous popularity of the Scottish National Party in terms of their success in the recent election. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you, as somebody who's a close observer of this, did, first of all, did you see this coming? Uh, what, what does it actually mean? And what do you speculate the future will be in terms of um, uh, both politically and in terms of any potential constitutional arrangement or modification or, or way forward? I can't speculate about the future. I, 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 you know, I could see many future possibilities. I hope they remain peaceful, whatever happens. Uh, as I say at the end of Acts of Union, and I'm not unique in this, I think one should just accept the inevitable. And if the UK is to cohere, it needs a lot more systematic thought as a whole unit, uh, not just a lot of little piecemeal concessions, which is what they've had thus far. Oh, the Welsh are being difficult, give them that. What can we do about Cornwall? Well, perhaps we'll do something there. Scotland, we'll give them a parliament. They're still not happy. Let's give them a referendum and so forth. You've got, I think, at some point to sit down and say, well, look, if we are going to have a continuing UK polity, how And on what terms can we make this entity work better so that we don't keep having these ongoing uh, issues? Um, Now, that may not be possible, but uh, a federal solution does seem to me something that 
you could think more systematically about. So, so what would you do very specifically if you were uh, Prime Minister Colley with a majority government? Uh, Resign right, very right quickly. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing I, I, I heard you say in a previous discussion was you think it would be uh, useful for England to have their own uh, parliamentary structure mm -hmm. to to provide a balance. So that's one concrete thing. I don't know if you would still yeah. maintain that, but yes, what, what, what other things would you do and what would you do vis-a-vis -vis constitutions and so forth? I think you have to start with some kind of constitutional convention, uh, bringing together different kinds of people and different kinds of experts and sorting this out. Uh, and um, as I say, I, I have just sat on this commission which has produced this report which will be issued on the 20th of this month um, and how much people will take any notice of it is beyond my control. But it is an attempt to try and create uh, an informed, well-written uh, assessment of where we are, what we could do, uh, how other countries have responded with these challenges and so on and so forth. Um, so it's a kind of how-to manual, which we hope that uh, the people that matter uh, will, will at least get some ideas from. Um, it is very challenging, but it's, it's simply not something, I think, anymore that you can respond to just on an ad hoc basis. And you can't just do it in the normal time of the Westminster Parliament, which is overworked anyway. Mm. Uh, you need a, a separate constitutional convention with different kinds of expertise than are currently represented in the Westminster Parliament. Okay, so I'm giving you all that. So okay. you have all of that. So mm -hmm. you, have, you have as much time as you want. Well, right, I'll give you five years or something. You can take, take the time. You can call whatever experts you want. Um, granted, you're looking for the response from those experts, and so you can't say carte blanche right now what you would, what you would do. But if you were... Uh, I was going to say if you were God, but if you were the Prime Minister, let's just, let's just scale different. it down a little bit. <laughs> and, and you had the opportunity to rejig and redesign uh, the United Kingdom in any way you saw fit, reasonably speaking. What, what would you do? I would have a federal structure. I'm fully aware, uh, though I think that people often harp on this difficulty in part because they don't want to think hard about possibilities. Uh, there is the problem, very obvious problem, is that the different component countries of the current United Kingdom vary so enormously in size, with England being not just much bigger, but containing by far the mass of the population. So how do you cope with that? Well, I don't know, uh, but um, just saying it's very difficult is not enough. I think you've got to think about the possibility of, of regional groupings. There's a, an obvious divide between the north and the south of England, which should probably be given some kind of constitutional expression. And this would be returning, in fact, to the past, in a sense, in that there used to be a Council of the North, which took special responsibility for the northern counties of England. Um, and, you know, 
if you don't have something like that, you have the problem that at the moment the bulk of the wealth, uh, the bulk of the state agencies, uh, what one associates with Britain is in fact all contained in the lower third of England and the rest of England is rather left out. At the time when industrialization was flourishing, that wasn't so much of a problem because the northern England cities were full of industrial might and money and therefore could counter the dominance of London. But of course that has gone. So you've got to think of other ways of uh, making sense of what is actually a very regionalized country as far as England is concerned. So I'm, I'm mindful of my time constraints, so I have just a few more questions for you. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about global history mm -hmm. and the trend in global history. So this seems to be, from my conversations with others, this seems to be a very fashionable academic topic now. But on the other hand, it seems as if looking at things from a more global perspective um, is not exactly a revolutionary new idea in any way, shape, or form. Um, and one concrete example of this, albeit somewhat different, but I think quite pertinent, is a book that you wrote, uh, The Ordeal of Elizabeth Marsh, when mm -hmm. you're looking at the example of one woman's experiences in a global context. So first of all, is that fair to say that, in, in fact, that's one of the things that you were trying to do is point out global links and, a, and, and, a, and living in a, in a, in a more coherent uh, world uh, from a long time ago? That's question number one. And question number two is, um, is this idea of globalization uh, or global history, I should say, is this idea of global history um, an academic fad? Is it something which is, in fact, substantive? Is it, is it, uh, is it a welcome development? Or are there other ways to characterize it? Mm. Um, yes, well, I mean, I wanted to do various things with Elizabeth Marsh, which was a, a book that I really enjoyed writing, though it drove me mad at times, even more than book writing normally does. Um, she was, in one way, such an extraordinary woman, also an appalling woman, and she did so many things. But I was interested both in showing how someone of hardly any education, no economic power, the wrong gender, uh, how nonetheless she was able to be choose to move, but also forced to move across continents, across oceans. How much could someone like this do at that particular point in time? Um, and partly because of her family links with the Navy, which really was as close to a global institution as you could have for right. those days, uh, she did an extraordinary amount. Though even then, uh, what I also wanted to show was what she couldn't do. Um, she was probably the first woman uh, to make that kind of 
uh, travel uh, in India and to write about it. But you note that she's still operating very close to the coast of India. She's not going inland um, for the good reasons that, you know, that mm. it would have been very difficult. There's no maps at that time. Uh, Europeans haven't really penetrated uh, into the center of India in the way that they're going to in the 19th century. So demarcating the limits of what she could do as well as the extent was part of what that book was about. Global history, yes. I mean, I, to a degree, I'm an enthusiast for global history, partly because it evolves naturally from my own interests. If you work on Britain in the post-1700 period, you are aware of its links not only with its expanding empire, but increasingly with every other part of the globe, almost mm -hmm. either through trade or exploration or travel or gold mining or, or whatever. So looking at Britain as a region which has global connections comes very naturally to me. Uh, I think global history is, is fashionable. Um, it's, of course, an absurd thing to do in many ways, and I still flinch at presenting myself as a global historian because hey, you know, it's, it's impossible to uh, be omniscient. Papua New Guinea all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, 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 there's so much that one doesn't know even about a single country. How on earth can you claim to be a historian of the globe? But looking at connections, but also looking at when connections fail and, and where are connections not happening... Uh, I think is is useful. I, I suspect uh, it will uh, be a trend that continues, partly because scholars like everyone else um, are becoming more mobile and visiting different places right. and learning different things. Are students changing at, at all? I mean, you, you've been teaching for, for a long time. Are, are, is there a, a difference in... Um, the quality of the orientation uh, of young students of history, or even old students of history, uh, these these days. I can only speak of American students, and yes, uh, they have differed enormously uh, since the 1980s when I started teaching here. Um, some of the differences are good; some, perhaps, not so good. Um, uh, like most people their age in prosperous parts of the world. Um, most of my students mainly look at text online. Um, they are less likely mm. to have read, say, the novels of Jane Austen, perhaps, mm. than the kind of students I taught at Yale starting in the 1980s. They don't even read them online? Mm, <laughs> no. Uh, not all of them. Um, and also they're much less interested in Europe. Um, they're much more interested in 
non-European history, my sense is. Uh, China is obviously very, very big. Mm. Um, but so increasingly with uh, the growing migration into the United States of Indian students, Pakistani students, much more interest, therefore, in those parts of the world. And they're certainly not interested in, in the same way they once were with you know, the old nation-state type of history. Um, if you put on a course now on, I don't know, early modern France, you get an audience, but you wouldn't get a big audience. Um, and also students are, perhaps with the passing of time, um, they're, they're probably more interested in the 19th and the 20th century than they are in the 17th and the 18th right. century. That said, uh, certain subjects and certain themes are resistant to change. Um, ancient Rome always goes down well. <laughs> Battles. War history always like the, goes like, down like well. Like these centuries and centurions who are standing guard while Vesuvius yeah. is erupting. But again, it's partly computer games. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so I, I don't even want to go there. I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, a brief uh, penultimate question. Yeah. Um, so perhaps some of this has to do with teaching. Perhaps mm -hmm. it doesn't, but perhaps some of this has to do with teaching and preparation. Um, so do you... Do you find that the students are as well prepared as a general rule? And uh, what advice would you give to high school teachers uh, about the teaching of history uh, in terms of how to prepare, how to adequately prepare or stimulate or excite uh, a student in 2015? My view of teaching is an idealistic one. I, I think history is a subject that stands or falls by the quality of the teaching to a particular degree. I mean, it should be a subject that is mind-blowing for everyone because, after all, it's about or substantially about human beings, but they just happen to be dead. But we're usually all of us interested in other human beings. So history has an enormous advantage in that respect. And my view is that, that the good history teacher can teach almost anything with or without technological aids uh, and make it work. That said, because so many young people now are utterly attuned to online learning and online skills, I think incorporating online technology into one's classes, uh, bringing um, you know all the the tricks that Google makes possible to the technologically aware teacher, to bear on the formation of uh, courses and teaching, all this can help um, to entice into the subject, uh, the students perhaps who might otherwise have remained on the margin uh, because they're just not used to dealing anymore with the printed page or the handwritten page um, and you want something to coax them in. 
um, for history teaching more broadly uh, and for studying history more broadly, um, it seems to me the, the thing that is most needful. Um, and I wish I had been made to do it much earlier than I was, is to encourage kids to learn lots and lots of languages. Uh, I think global history and transnational and transcontinental history are going to be with us for a long time. Um, and while English will take you a long way, uh, if you also have command of Spanish and Mandarin and Russian or whatever, uh, you can go a hell of a long way further. Uh, and that's, that's the crucial thing if you are an ambitious young historian now uh, to really get those languages under your belt. That's great. I have uh, one last question, which is a meta question, which is to ask you if you have any questions or anything else you'd like to say that we didn't cover, didn't feel was covered sufficiently well, or anything you'd like to add. I don't think so. No, I mean I think we've, you know, we've been quite wide-ranging. <laughs> my sense is that it has. Indeed. I well, mean, there is. I'm not dissatisfied. I just wanted to make no, sure that no, you had the opportunity no, I, to. No, I don't think so. I'm. I mean, I hope that was all right. Yes, and, uh, it was. It was great. Well, thank you very much. That was, that was pleasure. Great. That was great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with John Elliott, Richard Janko, Maria Mavrudi, and Jay Rubenstein. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.